Yeah, so this morning we're going to be starting a new series in 1 Thessalonians um, that I'm going to be doing. So I only get to preach a couple of times a year, so this could, well, I thought this was going to be one of the longest sermon series um, in church history. Um, but then I was reading this week that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 360 sermons on the book of Romans uh, over the course of 12 years. So uh, it won't ever be quite as long as that, I don't think. But hopefully we'll um, get through the book by, by 2023 at least, um, I'm hoping. So yeah, as, as Dom said, if you have a, a Bible there, uh, please open it to uh, chapter 1 of uh, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, I, I trust you've all been enjoying the, the, the snow this week. Um, it's actually reminded me of uh, our first winter in Dundee um, back in 2017, um, the, the infamous, uh, the year of the infamous beast from the east. And I, I can remember going with Rachel over to Tensmuir a couple of weeks after um, those couple of really stormy nights I had passed through. And I was just amazed uh, over Thamesmere to see the, the effects that the, the storm had. Um, there was trees down everywhere, branches everywhere, and uh, lots of the trees on the edge of the dunes were all facing west uh, after having been battered uh, night after night by um, those cold easterly winds. Uh, but there was a clear evidence that a storm, a powerful storm had swept through the forest. It had left its mark. And today's passage um, in today's passage, we see a, a different power. We see the power of the gospel. And we see what mark the gospel leaves on a place when it comes. We see um, what evidence there is that God has been at work um, in this city of Thessalonica. And, you know, how can we be sure that God has been at work? You know, it's, it's an important question. It can be easy to doubt the power of the gospel you know we can look at church, church history and we can see reformations and revivals and we can say yeah god was definitely at work then that was a powerful work of god and then we look at our present moment and wonder well you know is god still in this is he still backing his church or has he pulled out because the market looks like it's only going to go one way we can doubt it too because we don't feel it's making much of a difference in our own lives. You know, we can feel if it, if it isn't working for us, then why would it work for anyone else? Is the gospel really powerful? Well, I hope we're going to see this morning that it is. And so we're going to look at what happened when Paul and Silas and Timothy brought the gospel to uh, this city um, of Thessalonica in northern Greece during Paul's second missionary journey. So, on to our first point. So, what happens when the gospel comes to time? Well, the first point is a church is formed. And that can nearly seem too obvious to mention, can't it? But what I want us to see is that the church is actually a miracle of God's grace through the gospel. Here we see how God builds his church. The Thessalonians were young believers. And we read in Acts 17 that Paul spent about a month uh, with them, which isn't really long at all, but it was a really fruitful period of ministry. He spends a few weeks teaching in the synagogue and a mix of Jews and Greeks come to faith in Jesus. 
But this church got off to they got off to a really rocky start. Um, as as we heard earlier from Acts 17, you know the the, the Jews stir up a mob um, that ends up dragging Jason and some of the other new believers before the city authorities. And he here's the charges they bring against these new believers. It says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The violence ended up getting so bad that Paul and Silas had to, to leave the city just to try and ease some of the tension. But these young believers are under pressure from the very start. The religious authorities, the political authorities, right to get them and Paul understandably is worried about them. I've, I've, I've been enjoying um, the BBC series Perfect Planet recently. It's been it's been a while since I've watched any nature documentaries but and I've for, forgot how savage the animal kingdom can be sometimes. You know you can be happily watching some newborn gazelle following its mother around with the rest of the herds and then the camera slowly zooms out and you see the lion, lion crouching in the savannah grass ready to pounce. And we all know how it ends. The young are the most vulnerable to attack. And Paul is, similarly here, Paul is worried about this young church. They're vulnerable to all of these different pressures. He's had many sleepless nights worrying about this church. And we read in chapter three that he ends up sending Timothy to find out how they're doing, to encourage them in their faith. And Timothy's return is then the occasion for Paul writing this letter to them. And Paul really wants to encourage these unbelievers. He wants them to show them who they are. They are a church built by God on the firmest of foundations. It would be easy for all the suffering they're going through to make them doubt whether they are truly part of God's church, whether this really has been a work of God. But Paul wants to give them confidence in what God has done in them. And we see here that the church begins and ends in God, or that the gospel begins and ends in God. He is the architect and the builder. In verse 4, it says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The gospel starts in God. It comes from God. And then verse one, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A church has been formed in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Begins and ends in God. But let's have a little look a little more about what this actually means. You know, language of being chosen by God, that can make us feel a little bit uneasy sometimes. Uh, we have all our different questions um, and there is some unanswerable questions and uh, there's a lot of mystery surrounding um, this truth but let me, let's just notice a few things about it here. Paul mentions it as a source of great comfort and assurance. It's spoken of in tandem with, with God's love. It's being chosen by God is meant to be an assurance of his love for them. He hasn't chosen them because of anything in them. He's chosen them because he loves them. No one deserves the grace and favour of God. And it's an amazing thing that he chooses to save and love anyone. I notice too here that it doesn't hinder evangelism. It actually it motivates it. Paul comes to Thessalonica, 
preaching the gospel. And he knows the success of his mission trip doesn't ultimately depend on him. You know, we read in Acts that he reasons with them over a number of weeks. They are convinced and believe. But Paul wants to give them another reason here for their new belief. He says that the gospel came in words, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The Bible describes the human race as spiritually dead, as we read about in Ephesians 2. And dead people can't make themselves alive. And so it requires the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to make people alive in Christ, to bring people to faith in him. John Stott sums these verses up well when he says, the spirit without the word is weaponless and the word without the spirit is powerless. We need both. But why bother evangelizing if God has already chosen to save? Well, we don't see things from God's perspective. And we're commanded in the Bible to go and share the gospel with all nations, to make disciples of all nations. And we only know who God has chosen through who receives or rejects the gospel. So Paul preached the gospel in confidence that God would bring people to faith in Christ. And here the Thessalonians believed in the midst, it says, of much affliction. They saw how the crowds had treated Paul and Silas and they experienced suffering for themselves. And yet they still are still following Christ. This has been a true work of God. And this is, should be such an encouragement for us. You know, God will build his church even in the midst of great pressure. We can have confidence in that. I think sometimes we can underestimate just how difficult it was to be a Christian back then. You know, or, you know, Paul was obviously very gifted and used greatly by God, but he wasn't the reason the church exploded into life in those first few centuries or since. Without God's backing, it would never have got off the ground. And it's the same today. God is building his church. The fact that we are here 2,000, liters, 2000 years later in a culture that really doesn't want anything to do with him is testament that God is building his church. I find this incredibly encouraging. You know, even in the midst of riots and mob rule, God is building his church. The gospel begins and ends in God and his words will not return to him empty. He won't let that happen. You know, all the statistics in this country about this church show that it's shedding numbers at an alarming rate. It can often seem like a bit of a sinking ship. Has God given up on his church? We can look at the cultural wars raging around us and wonder, how can anyone ever come to faith in this? Why would they believe? Their life seems fine without God. They definitely would believe, wouldn't believe because of all they've been through. And they've made it perfectly clear what they think of the gospel. But often when we think like this, we're thinking from a worldly perspective. God will build his church. We need to have confidence in that. We need to pray that God will gather his people to himself in this city. And the other thing we see here, just from verse one, is that God will keep his church to the end. You know, sometimes we can skip over the greetings and Paul's letters there. There's just simple 
niceties before he gets into the meat and bones of what he wants to say. But Paul doesn't waste his words. And verse one would have been a huge encouragement to this church under pressure. It says to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul only spent a few weeks with this church and had to leave in a hurry. And like new, many New Testament churches, the, the Jews in the city would have been attempting to discredit Paul and his message. And doubts would have crept in. You know, are we really the true people of God? Do we need to know more? Do we need to do more? Are we missing something? Well, imagine how encouraging verse one would have been for them to hear. You are part of God's church. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You are full members of the household of God. They are in. They didn't need Paul to come and do another discipleship explored course with them. There aren't different levels of membership in the church. They have full access into fellowship with God. They can't be more in. Colossians says that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And it's just, just another way of summarizing what he says here that they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is, what is the church? You know, you can think of the church as a building, or many people just think of the church as a social club or what people do on a Sunday. But here we see that it's a living community who follows Jesus and who finds life, identity, and security in God. One of the ma magazines that I, I read every week had an article in it recently about whether the church would survive lockdown. Will the past year be the, the death of the church in this country? Well, no. God's church is pandemic proof. The church will survive through lockdown. Not because of wonderful technology like, like Zoom, as good as it is, but because of what it is. Its life is in God. Its identity is in God. It's secure in God. And so we see here this church has been formed and it is a miraculous work of God brought about through the preaching of the gospel. God builds his church through the gospel and he will keep his church to the end. Paul actually sort of bookends the whole letter with this confidence. Um, he says then in chapter five, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. So what happens when the gospel comes to time? A church is formed. And that, that, that's an amazing thing. The second, the second thing we see is Lives are transformed. The gospel changes lives. This church has their life in God. And that life is made visible in their changed lives. Paul wants them to have them to have, Paul wants them to have confidence in the power of the gospel. And this next piece of evidence he gives them is that look at what God has done in your life. Look at how your lives have changed since you have believed. The gospel has left its mark on them. Their past, their present, their future have been completely changed by the gospel. Gospel isn't simply another self-help method. It isn't simply a lifestyle choice. You know, we, we can think of lots of things that have the power to motivate change in people. 
But the gospel comes and it brings about a total transformation in a person's life. The gospel seeps into every area of our lives. So let's have a look at the effect that it had. So three things, a new allegiance, a new way of living and a new hope. So first of all, look at verse nine and 10, a new allegiance. So he says, for, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. From dead idols to serve the living God. They once worshipped idols and, you know, we can read the word idol and think that they were simply turning away from, you know, superstitious nonsense, but that's not the case. Um, idolatry is much bigger um, than that. And the, the Bible is clear that everyone worships something. Romans 1.25 says that in our sin, we, we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And so anything that we serve instead of God is a created thing. It's an idol. Riku Tice puts it well when he says, when we worship an idol, we turn God into a divine waiter. He is there to deliver our daydream to us. He's there to serve us, not him. So the essence of sin is, is living in God's world as if everything revolves around me. But here's what the gospel does. It turns hearts away from idols to serve Jesus as king. The Thess through the gospel, the Thessalonians were convinced that Jesus was worthy of their total allegiance and service. Talking about serving someone else sounds like the words of a madman to much of our culture. You know, the Disney Channel turns out movies telling us, forge your own path, be true to yourself, you do you. We cherish the, the idol of freedom. Freedom is all about getting to, to make up what counts as the good for yourself. It's all about you. And we're, we're trained in this way of thinking um, since we've been in nappies. But the Bible tells us that our greatest good is actually knowing and serving God. That's what we're created for. And only the gospel has the power to remove these idols from us. Many of you will have heard of Thomas Chalmers, the 19th century Scottish preacher. His most famous sermon was called The Expulsive Power of a new affection. He says that the only way to dispossess of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And that's what the gospel is. When the gospel is preached, people see Christ as better and more worthy than all the world can offer. Through his life, death and resurrection, he shows himself in all his goodness, he shows himself to be worthy of our service. So the gospel has the power to completely change the direction of someone's life. But our hearts don't stop making idols. Um, they are idol-making factories, as John Calvin puts it. And when we become a Christian, that doesn't change. The conveyor belt doesn't stop working when we come to faith. And so we need the gospel, not just the beginning of our Christian lives, but every day to help keeping us on track Keep us heading in the right direction, serving Christ, looking to him. Second thing we see here, so they have a new allegiance, but this new allegiance leads to a whole new way of living. 
Paul is so thankful for them in verse three when he speaks about their present obedience. He talks about remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is so thankful for this report that Timothy has brought back about these believers. Their lives are now marked by faith, love, and hope. And this is as good a summary as any of the Christian life. It's Christianity 101. And even in the midst of all the pressure around them, this church are growing in faith, hope, and love. And that's a sure sign that the gospel has been at work. Now, we could easily do a whole sermon looking at these three things in turn, but let's just notice a few things about them, okay? These things aren't just ideas or feelings that we have. No, they, they do something. So faith works. Love labors. Hope endures. And secondly, notice that they're all directed outwards. Faith towards God, love towards others, hope in Christ. That's what the gospel does. The gospel isn't simply something to be believed. It's something to be lived out. And so our repentance, our turning to God in faith and serving him should be visible in our lives. You know, we know the phrase actions speak louder than words. They reveal whether our trust in Jesus has truly gripped our whole being. Here we're called to embody the gospel with our lives. We are to be walking adverts for the gospel. Many, many of you know that I'm a physio in the hospital and one of the things I do before seeing every patient is uh, I have a look at their news chart to make sure that when, when I get them up, they're not going to keel over on me. And if you don't know what a news chart is, it's just a chart that's filled out at regular intervals during the day by the nursing staff and um, monitors the patient's vital signs like blood pressure, heart rate, that kind of thing. And it's an important indicator of how well or unwell uh, a patient is. Now, in the Christian life, it's never a good thing to be constantly checking your pulse, looking at how you're doing. That will only lead to anxiety, frustration, because often growth is slow. But it's important that we do know what vital signs we should be looking at. And a faith that works, a love that labours and a hope that endures, well, that's, that's a good place to start. These are three things that are repeated throughout the letter. We're going to learn more about them as we go through the letter. And they're, they're distinctive marks of Christian living. These Thessalonians are not the perfect church, but they, they are a model church for us. They've begun to show these signs in their lives, and Paul wants to encourage them in this way of living. So when we look for evidence of God's work in our own lives, you know, it can often be easier to just look back at our conversion than our present living because to say growth can be slow often the christian life is like one of those graphs where there's a sort of a steep curve at the start and then it sort of gradually begins to plateau but we need to make sure that we're growing in the right direction and so it's important that we look at our lives and say are they growing are we growing in faith are we growing in love are we growing in hope these are things that should be visible in our lives. But they don't come about by, by trying harder. They are an overflow of the gospel's work in our life. We had connect group on Wednesday night there and um, 
in our prayer time at the end, someone, um, I won't say who, uh, prayed, prayed this wonderful line. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it went something like, God, would your love and joy leak out of us? I think that's, that's a great illustration. Would your gospel have such an impact on us that this, these lives of faith, hope, and love leak out of us? And being living average for the gospel isn't about grand gestures, gestures, isn't about running a soup kitchen seven days a week. No, it's about letting the gospel seep into every area of our lives. You know, we had great examples of this during our lockdown testimonies a few weeks back. You know, I, I find them so encouraging. You know, it's been a difficult year for many, but we heard stories of faith strengthened, of opportunities to pray for family and friends who don't follow Christ. We saw people able to endure a really difficult year because their hope is in God. And that's what a life of faith, hope and love looks like on the ground. It's, it's more realistic then than we think. Finally here, um, we're going to look at this new hope that these people were called to. The gospel gives people a new hope, a new outlook on the future. Look at verse 10 with me. So they, they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true gods, and then to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The return of Christ is potentially the biggest theme in this whole letter. Paul does mention it quite a few times throughout. And for Paul, it isn't some long-term insurance policy for the Christian. It's something that motivates all that we do. It's the essential part of the Christian mindset. We are hopers. And I have to confess, this, this bit has actually really challenged me. You know, it's not something I think about very often. Never mind letting it impact how I actually live today. But we need to let God's word shape, not just how we're to live, but how we're to think about the future as well. And if this is such a vital part of a Christian mindset, then we need to reflect on it more. You know, the world is in desperate need of hope at the moment, where we're hoping for the end of lockdown. And we hope for the end of lockdown because we know that this isn't normal life. This isn't the way things are meant to be. And that hope should give us a small picture into what it means to hope in Christ's return. You know, we long for his return because we know this fallen world is not the way the world is meant to be. It's not where we're headed. There is something better to come. Christ is coming to make all things new. And so we long for his return. People need hope, don't they? A collective depression seems to have fallen over um, the, the world nearly, you could say. But we don't need hope just for the end of lockdown. You know, for many, there will be difficult days ahead, even as we come out of lockdown. Unemployment, ongoing depression, broken relationships. But we need a bigger hope, something that is actually going to help us to endure to the end. And so we need to look to Christ and his return. So we see here how the gospel transforms a life. It changes the direction of a life. It changes how we live our lives. And it changes our outlook on the future. And the final thing we see when the gospel comes to town is that the word spreads. Okay, the, the church 
spreads the gospel. Look at verse 8 with me. So, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Ikea, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. In this passage, we actually have God's strategy for evangelizing the world. Churches formed by the gospel, spreading the gospel. In verse 6, we read that the Thessalonians became imitators of Paul, Silas and Timothy. And they understood that Paul didn't come with this amazing message um, for them to keep to themselves. This message was to be passed on. It was simply too good for them to keep to themselves. One of the things I remember about the day Rachel and I got engaged uh, was how much of the day was spent sitting in the car on the phone to family and friends. You know, because it was good news. We could not tell everyone. Could have waited a day or two probably for some people, but anyway. Um, but I, I love that expression that we see here um, that Paul uses for this church. He says, the word of the Lord sounded forth from them. This church has become a springboard for the gospel. The word has reverberated around the region. There are ripple effects of Paul's gospel ministry being felt everywhere here. And so we see here that the church is part of God's ongoing mission. We get to join in in God's plan to spread the good news to our neighbours and to the nations. And this will continue until God has gathered his people from every corner of the globe. The great 19th century Scott David Livingstone puts it this way, Christ alone can save the world, but Christ cannot save the world alone. The church is God's instrument for reaching the world. I wonder if you were to come up for, the, for a strategy to reach the world, what would you come up with? Maybe you would get some influencers on board, try and get, get your message out there. You could pump thousands of pounds into a slick marketing campaign. You could try and book celebrity preachers who will be able to engage people a little bit more. You could maybe smooth off some of the rougher edges of the gospel, make it more palatable, make it reach a wider audience. Well, here we see that the church is God's strategy community of Jesus followers, embodying the gospel with their lives and sharing the gospel with their lips. See, the, the, the gospel is a message about Jesus. Through his death and resurrection, a whole new way of life has been opened up to all who would follow him. I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And it gets obviously at an important point, so our lives should reflect the gospel. We've seen that. We need to embody the gospel with our lives. But that's not enough. We need to speak the gospel. We need to share the message. And that can often seem like a, a daunting task, can't it? You know, one way to lose friends and alienate people is to, to talk about Jesus. But if we believe the gospel has changed us, and that it truly is good news for the world, we must pass it on. Some people won't be willing to hear our message. Most people think they can do fine without Jesus. But this should be our priority. This is the church's priority. 
And again, I would encourage us to think, think small. This can seem like a really daunting thing to do. We don't naturally want to evangelize a lot of the time. But don't think about running a Christian explored group for your whole street, as, as great as that would be. Just look around at your relationships with your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors. Pray for opportunities and seek opportunities to share the hope that you have in Jesus. We exist as the church to pass on this message of hope. And it's an urgent message. You know, at the end of verse 10, Paul doesn't water down the message of the gospel. We wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is a judgment coming, but today is the day of salvation. This is the time of God's patient pleading with people to turn to him. Our hope is in Christ. He has taken that judgment upon himself on the cross. And we look forward with hope, not fear. But there will be a judgment. And so our mission, the church's mission, it's an urgent one. The gospel has an expiry date. God has fixed a date in history where Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And, you know, a church under pressure, for a church under pressure, the temptation will always be to water down the gospel. But a watered down gospel is it's no good to anyone. So we must be willing to go and share the true gospel with others. God is building his church. The, go the gospel is a, a life-changing message of hope and power. And the church is God's means of spreading this gospel to the end of the earth. And even here in Dundee. Do you think the gospel is powerful? Well, I hope you've seen that it is. We read in Acts 17 that these men have turned the world upside down. That's what the gospel did. And it's the reason that you and I are here 2,000 years later following Jesus. God's unstoppable gospel has spread to every corner of the globe. The gospel is still changing lives now. And God is behind his gospel all the way to Christ's return. His word will not return to him empty. And so he calls us his church to go with confidence in him. To share the gospel and to live out this message of hope to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to, to Jesus, to see him in all his glory. We thank you that you have given us faith as a gift of your grace. Father, forgive us when we don't appreciate the amazing reality that the church is. Forgive us when we doubt that your gospel is powerful to save and transform lives. Forgive us when we shy away from sharing your gospel because we don't think it is good news for all to hear. 
Father, we pray that you would, um, like Paul did for the Thessalonians here, give us confidence in you. Give us confidence in your, your power, in your word. We pray that you would continue to transform our lives, that we would live lives of faith, love, and hope before others. We pray that you would give us boldness to go and share this wonderful message of hope that we have in our Saviour and Lord Jesus. Father, please, would you gather your people in this city? Would you build your church, even here in Dundee? And would you give your church here confidence to go and spread your gospel message? For your glory we ask all this, in Jesus' name. Amen.